Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at the administration building for Hamilton Southeastern Schools, and I'm here with two of the top administrators for the Hamilton Southeastern School System. I'm here with uh, Katie Dowling, the Chief Financial Officer for HSC Schools, and Kim Lippy. And Kim, I'm going to try to get your, your entire title correct assistant superintendent of staff and student services and also human resources correct correct i try to tell people when i they ask me what does kim lippy do i said he she does what mike beresford did before he went to carmel is that fair that's accurate okay <laughs> accurate is a good word when i'm trying to do these things so ladies thank you very much uh, for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule for both of you to, to talk with me. So I want to just start off with each of you. And Katie, I'd like to start off. Uh, my first question to you is this. You're, of the two of you, you're the one that's joined the HSC school system most recently. So uh, I'm sure there are many people who maybe don't know about your background. So just talk about your career path before you arrived here at HSC schools. Thanks, Larry. Glad to be here today. This is a first for me, just so you know, my first podcast. Uh, so it's painless, trust me. I'm, I have no <laughs> doubt. Um, I started, I've worked my whole professional career in public sector um, finance for the most part. So I started uh, in a town uh, working in a utility department, um, then went into the county treasurer's office and supervised there for about three years, and then came back to my same town, my town of Highland, and spent five and a half years as the deputy clerk treasurer there. So very similar to what I do here in an unelected capacity, if you will. Um, and then eight years ago, I took the plunge and I jumped into schools. Um, so I started in East Chicago at East Chicago Schools or School City of East Chicago. Uh, worked in uh, Griffith Public Schools. And then most recently before HSE, I was in Crown Point Schools for just over five years. And then have made the trek um, here to HSE. Um, the size itself makes it a challenge, which intrigued me, uh, but was really interested in, in making a different impact. And so uh, actually moving next week, I'll be a community member as well. Well, I'm going to say, you, you spent your life in the region. I did. And you've now come to the Indy area. This is a big change for you. It is and it isn't. There's a lot of region folks here. Well, I, I know that. in plain sight. By the way, you say you started with the town. I moved to Fishers in 1991. We were a town of less than 10,000 when I got here. Of course, we all know the latest census says we're bumping up against 100,000 mm -hmm. population at the moment. So, Kim, let me go to you, Kim Lippy. Uh, you've been here longer at HSE than, uh, than Katie, but uh, just talk about your career, how you ended up at HSE schools and the job you have now. Sure. So, thank you as well. Thanks for having us today. And um, it is hard to believe I'm in my 14th year with HSE schools. And, you know, a lot of folks may not know that um, originally out of college, I worked in the business world. So worked in banking and finance prior to deciding that I wanted to go into education. Uh, so had my first teaching job at Warren Central High School. So was a social studies teacher, economics, U.S. history, psychology, also tennis coach. 
And um, from there, I was encouraged to go into administration. Um, so I've just really followed that pathway. So um, while working at other schools and working my way to HSE, uh, again, folks may not know that I was an assistant principal at Hamilton Southeastern High School and then the freshman center principal, followed by Fall Creek Junior High, um, which, you know, really um, love that age of students. Um, so it's just it's been a great pathway here and have always had that interest in the HR piece and being a superintendent. Um, and I'm in my third year here at Central Office. Well, let me dig into some of the issues I want to discuss with you. And the reason I wanted both of you together is because I, I was actually out of town uh, for the first time you presented. But I saw the video of your presentation before the school board uh, on the uh, Deer Creek Elementary School. And the two of you did that presentation together, as you did uh, the most recent school board meeting the day before we record this. And today, we're recording this on October 14th. But Deer Creek Elementary in Wayne Township is coming on board. It will open in, if all goes well, we assume it will, August of 2022. And that's going to require a look at the boundary lines for elementary schools in that area. Now, you have both gone to great pains to not call this redistricting because that does bring an entirely different process to mind, especially in recent years uh, with redistricting. So uh, you've adjusted adjustment to boundaries is how you've tried to describe this. So, Katie, I'll ask you to start the discussion. Explain the reason for that uh, wording, if you will. Uh, generally speaking, when you hear the term redistricting, you think of the entire district, right? You think it's going to impact everyone in K-12. In this case, our goals were very specific. The priority being, obviously, we need to open Deer Creek. And so we need to accommodate a building that's closing. We also know we have a building that is significantly over capacity. And there are several other goals below that, but those were really the top two. And one of our goals was to I'm paraphrasing, a minimal impact on the district. Um, and I'm not sure if this was the meeting you missed. Some of our rationale behind that was the pandemic has had an impact on the real estate market, specifically in the existing home turnover. The concern um, after talking to Dr. McKibben is if we did a corporation-wide we might end up having to do it again once the market sort of normalizes. And Dr. McKibben, for those who don't know, is Jerry McKibben, who is the demographer that's been used for years by Hamilton Southeastern Schools and a number of other school <laughs> I, systems in the area. I think every district in Indiana pretty much at this point. <laughs> he's uh, last, uh, I've talked to him a couple of times when he's been here, and I know whenever he's here, he's off somewhere else, Fort Wayne or some mm -hmm. other part of the state. Uh, so it's... it's uh, it, yeah, he's the one that – and, and I, Kim, I'll ask you this because that uh, kind of going from Katie's point, um, now that you're having to make these changes for Deer Creek, uh, there is going to have to be a redistricting in the future. And uh, Dr. McKibbin is saying, well, you'll need a redistricting. Now may not be the time to do a full redistricting. So is this one reason you're calling this a boundary change just to affect that general neighborhood, if you will, uh, in and around Deer Creek and, and Southeastern Elementary. Yeah, exactly. I think that's part of, of our decision that plays into that. Um, again, is just trying to minimize the impact with the opening of, of that new elementary in the Wayne Township area. Again, just trying to minimize the impact, knowing that in the future um, we could be facing 
a redistricting. So right now we want to stick to just redefining those boundary lines. Let me stay with you, Kim, for just a moment, because at the meeting on October 13th, um, there was one school board member that uh, said, well, okay, basically what you're doing with the opening of Deer Creek is taking all the Durban elementary students, putting them to Deer Creek, and taking the extra students, um, about 200 overcrowded at Southeastern Elementary, putting them in Deer Creek, and and you both said, well, that's sort of the way we're doing it. Explain that a little more, if you will. Yeah, and, and I think, um, just referring to that board member's comments, and I think... Um in their mind, they were just trying to process it in their own way. You know, let me let me just see if I can put this into my own words and into a framework that simplifies this process. Um, while we wish it were, you know, a very simple process, yes, we do have to fill the Deer Creek building with students from Durban, but we do also have to consider the overcapacity um, of enrollment at Southeastern. Um, and I know, uh, again, some questions were asked, is it just going to be those two? And I know you may, I, I may be getting ahead here, but at the community meeting, we will discuss some of the options um, that we've been working through currently. And Katie, let me ask about that meeting, because there is a community meeting coming up October 26th at HSC High School. I believe it's 6 p.m. And yes. uh, I guess the big question is, HSC High School is a big place. Where is it going to be in the high school? Um, actually, that's going to be in the main cafeteria. Oh, okay. Um, yep, so inner, easy to inner find. door one, easy to find. <laughs> Correct. Okay. So, t uh, Katie, tell me exactly, people who do come to this meeting on the 26th, uh, what will they expect to see here and what, what listening will you be doing? Just explain what the plans are for that meeting. So, generally speaking, the plans are to pr pr present sorry, present okay. <laughs> um, the options that we worked through and the sort of our opinion of what we see with those. Uh, we also want the public to see those so that they can then offer feedback on those, ask questions that have to do with them. Um, also part of that is all of the demographic data that's associated with those students, uh, the building itself, um, you know, it's anything from gender to demographic status to um, race and ethnicity, all things because we do want to make sure we're not overloading with, you know, we don't want a building that has very, very low uh, poverty as compared to the district as a whole. You don't, you don't want to load a building one way or the other. Um, those are my top pieces of it. I also think we'll have data um, from Dr. McKibben, um, who is taking uh, our existing demographic study and applying um, some data points to it, including our most recent student count um, for the fall. And so we will share all of that data uh, for the public to understand what we were using while we were evaluating our options. But I will tell you, Kim also has the other part of that perspective. That's why we're a tandem. We'll get we'll uh, we'll get to the uh, student count issue in a minute. But yeah, please dovetail on that. Uh, you know what I would add to that is um, in going through this process again is examining. Um, examining the fact that we've got to provide capacity at schools um, with the greatest potential for growth. Um, we've got to also consider the impact on neighborhoods and subdivisions. So again, when we talk to the community, we really want this to be a data-driven, community input um, process so that the board is, is able to make the best decision. You know, Katie, the uh, detailed census data 
is not available yet. I'm dying to dig into that myself as a kind of a number of nerd myself and see if there's anything in there that's newsworthy. Uh, but will the you talked about the McKibben uh, contribution to this, and he's been doing this a long time, doing this work. Will the census data give you information and data that will also be useful to you? So I would say it like this. So before I was here in Crown Point, we were due, uh, we were planning actually to do a new demographic study because normally you update it, you do a complete new evaluation and you time it with the census uh, because that is the biggest source of data. So this is now, oh gosh, I don't know, a year, 18 months ago, when I spoke to Dr. McKibben, um, his characterization of the census was that it was a dumpster fire. Um, and those are his words. And, and his reason was the impact the pandemic had on our ability to properly account for people. And so what he's been working on, and not I don't know that everybody knows with Dr. McKibben, he has some strategic partnerships, one of those being with the biggest provider, the largest provider of GIS or the global information system for people and positioning and where everybody's at. Mm -hmm. And so he was basically creating supplemental data points, I would call them, to sort of replace or supplement the census data, because at this point, they didn't know when that new information was going to come. Um, so I know there is, you know, generally census data available. I know November 30th was that date of the public release. Mm -hmm. um, I also would say there are people that have access to some of that information before it's available to the general public. Um, but you I wouldn't have, be one of those people. I'm not, I don't oh, okay. know that I'm not one of those people. I'm not even sure that Dr. McKibben is, I but see. he has these partnerships with data that we'll be able to use because his concern, you know, is he's a person who takes pride in the work that he does, that if he takes a flawed data set, nobody is going to care that it came from the census because mm -hmm. his job is to validate and to produce reliable results. And so uh, those are things we're working through with Dr. McKibben now. Um, you know, at the time that we set up this timeline, I, w I don't know that they had released yet when that census data was going to become available, and we could not afford to wait. We felt like our families uh, and Dr. Stokes and the board, that was their um, – their task for us, you know, we really want this to be resolved before we leave for Christmas break so that families have time, people can plan process. And so that took precedence. And frankly, at that time, we, we didn't know when it would be available. You know, Kim, uh, during the discussion at the October 13th meeting, Dr. Yvonne Stokes, the superintendent, did chime in to say that when Deer Creek is open, her expectation is that it will be about 80% filled. And when she said that, I thought back to a meeting I attended several months ago where the mayor of Noblesville, Chris Jensen, came before the HSC school board and basically said that his city would be expanding in the direction of Wayne Township, which is HSC schools. Even though Noblesville has its own school system within its current city limits, they're expanding into Wayne Township, which is HSC district. He fully understands that and wanted the board and school officials to know about that. So I am, uh, I suspect that as that is part of the reason that Deer Creek will not be full at the time it opens, at least as far as you can tell now, and that at least the first surge of those, those uh, that development, which is to be both commercial and residential based on the mayor of Noblesville, in, in, in the not too distant future, is gonna absorb some of that early um, uh, growth. Is that also your understanding? 
Yeah, I think that would be my understanding as well. But we do um, we do want to open that building at roughly eighty percent capacity, with the outlook being there, you know, for continued growth mm-hmm. in that area. Well, living in Fishers, I've seen continued growth through most of the time I've lived <laughs> yes, here. Mm-hmm. That's and, true. <laughs> and it was Dr. McKibben that said in the last report that it was leveling off. Although he also said that there will be. Um, it will be problems with growth in some areas and not like the west end of the city may not be growing with school age uh, people as much as the eastern end so there may be some disconnect there for a large school system which and people don't always remember the fact that hsc schools as far as the student count is concerned is the fourth largest school system in the state even with the reductions in the recent it's, there's the number five is pretty far behind us so uh, we are we are a big school system um, okay anything else on deer creek before i move on any, anything you want to add to that let me go to katie then you are the chief financial officer after all and uh, i've seen your presentations including the one you had at the April, october 13th meeting on the 2022 budget, um, I've seen a lot of budget cycles, and different CFOs have different ways of presenting it. The numbers are all the same; they mm-hmm. don't change. But the way you present it is different. And I think uh, I, I, I uh, was always used to the way Mike Reuter did it for years. Uh, by the way, is he still a consultant, or has he uh, moved on from being? Because I know he had a consulting contract when he left HSE. He doesn't have a consulting contract. Um, but we do, so we aren't compensating him monetarily mm-hmm. with any type of pay. Uh, he does look over the budget plan. Um, mm-hmm. Our budget plan is actually still in Lotus, if oh you remember. Oh, my exactly. <laughs> Yes, we, uh, we did have to obtain our last update through eBay, is my oh, understanding. My so one of the things we're working on is converting into Excel, obviously. So that's one not day, an easy thing to do. Either. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to find somebody that knows how to do that. But that's besides <laughs> the point. So uh, my Mike does come in and and review for me. I've met with Mike and Mr. Reuter. He's been very helpful to sort of uh, give me some of the history. You know, I think people forget, you know, Mr. Reuter was the CFO for 25 years and and did a great job. Um, And Cecily Nunn, who followed him, was his director of business for 22 of those 25 years. Um, So we're fortunate to have you know, Mike and Cecily still here in a, in a capacity that we can work with them. But um, so he's not technically a consultant contract. No. But, but he still uh, has ties to HSE. Those, he does. It's hard to break those ties after well, all those years. I think Mike Reuter is the budget consultant for many of our public entities in Hamilton County. Well, I know the city of Fishers uses him for all of their income forecasts and have for years. And they continue to going back to the town days because so, I was in part of I was covering the Fishers city budget and then mike's name came up there it just uh, and it has uh, every year but in you as you look forward to this uh, budget if you count all of the funds i think it's a little over 268 million dollars for 2022 which is an increase uh, but i do want to ask about and we can tell that i mean i'm not going to get into the the weeds of that budget uh, i do want to ask you this uh I know that in one school board meeting, going back and checking, uh, at one point you were projecting about 215 fewer students this school year mm-hmm. compared to last. What number did you actually turn into the state? Because that was before the date mm-hmm. you used for that. So our uh, the final count, and we have, you know, a very... A, a, um process of validation that we mm-hmm. go through the state. So we have a couple outliers, but it's one or two. It's not... 
you know, hundreds. Um, so our final submission um, was 21,224. And that ended up being about a hundred and not about 172 students less than what we turned in um, for a, the ADM the prior year at the same time. Well, I know that it's obvious the state compensates school systems based upon the number of students in the school system. So losing 172 students, give or take one, a few, uh, is that going to impact your budget planning? It did impact our budget planning during the planning process. You know, the state of Indiana finished their biennium, budget biennium um, earlier this year, obviously. And so now we had the per student funding information for this year, this school year and next school year. And so the state overall did provide all schools, they put a billion dollars into public education. And so the district did see an increase in their per student. So even though we did see a reduction in students, we did not see a reduction in overall revenue. Now we were tracking that enrollment weekly um, all year. I mean, we really are, we're monitoring it. So we knew where we were heading as we were going. So we're not just waiting until September 17th and saying, oh, oh boy, we're down. You know, we're constantly monitoring that, making sure buildings are you know, reviewing and ensuring their data is clean. Uh, on top of that, the state of Indiana has changed sort of the portal that we use to submit some of this data. And so that actually requires us to submit updates more frequently. And so the whole process is a little bit different, but we are always monitoring that because it's obviously the single biggest revenue to the education fund, and that's our teacher fund. Let me ask Kim, uh, when it comes to the number of students and trying to keep track of that at all times, uh, is that a, a difficult process? It's such a large school system. Is it hard to track that, or do you have a pretty good handle on students coming in and out as the, the time goes on? No, I, I feel like we have a good handle on that. And within the staff and student services department, I'm more able to you know track the, the flow of students in and out of our in and out of our district. So I feel like we have a good handle on that. Well, let me go back to Katie because I want to get this is kind of a budget wrap up here. Uh, during the there was a is a requirement to have a public hearing anytime you have a budget. And uh, by the way, November first is the deadline, mm -hmm. and uh, so you have the you have to give notice. And and you had the public hearing on October thirteenth, the night uh, before we record this. And uh, there were a number of comments, but what I uh, found really interesting is that there are a lot of people who have a lot of experience in business private business, private accounting and, and, and budgeting and so forth, and they look at the school budget and they ask a lot of questions that would make perfect sense in, in the, the private sector world. Unfortunately uh, for school systems, and it, you know this better than I, that uh, the state of Indiana has set all the rules. November 1st date is a drop-dead date. If you don't pass that, I think you go back to the previous year's That's budget, correct. which is a huge cut for mm -hmm. anybody these days. Uh, so you don't want to do that. Uh, but I, I'm asking about particularly one uh, a question somebody asked. They said, well, why don't we just wait until we have more demographic data before we approve the budget? Which seemed like a reasonable question to ask. But you had to bring up later, well, we'd love to do that if we could. Problem is, the state of Indiana said we have to have this budget by November 1st. That's just one example, I think, Katie, of, of it's really hard to explain to someone, even someone who's very well schooled in private accounting, private budgeting, and so forth, 
that schools have to play by different rules, and it's not the rules the school systems always make. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I always joke that people who are CPAs, they dislike public fund accounting because it's fund accounting and it's cash basis, um, and that's unusual. I would say the other big difference, to your point, a private entity, um, their budgets are governed by their board of directors and their timelines. Uh, what's their reporting period? Are they on annual? Is they have a, you know Is it a fiscal year different than the calendar year? We don't have have any we have no input into that process so the indiana code prescribes budgets have to be adopted before november 1st Um, that's the process that we use Um, the department of local government finance uh, governs that monitors and if we don't meet those timelines what you what you indicated is accurate we revert back to the prior year so when you are a community like ours who is growing that would mean we can't realize any of the increase in assessed value um, you know to have additional revenue um, so that would be uh, it would would not be good for us I would also say census data is really helpful for a demographic study it's not something that factors in per se for generating our budget itself. Um, In Indiana, you may be aware, they passed some language several years ago, the General Assembly, if you're a district over 15,000, they are trying to move us into a modified accrual, which would be more familiar to ACPA. Um, And we are in the first year of converting to that was last year before I was here. We're in year two. And so there are things that we're doing in terms of payables, receivables, the things we need to track. Um, I also think There are many funds that are not required to go through the annual budget process. One of those is grants. And so that's something, too, I think can be confusing because you see that revenue. If you look at an annual report, which is available through the, you know, the the transparency portal through the the DLGF or the gateway, uh, you would see a much larger number than that 258. But that is because that is the bond issues, that is grants, that is all these other items that are not required to go through this statutory process. And and you, you go through a actually your fiscal year is a calendar year by state law. It is. Yet that doesn't actually conform with the school year. So it does not. And come, Makes, uh, makes everything a little more complicated, but I guess every school system has to deal with that. Yeah, there's so. only two districts in the state that are actually on a July 1, July to June 30 uh, budget year. Now, how did they get away with that? I honestly don't know the history, but I do know one of them is Warren Central. I don't know oh. what the other one is, but there's only two left in the state. I was okay. speaking to their CFO, and he, he said, well, yeah, I'm just starting my budget. And I'm thinking, what? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot. You're July, July to June. Um, but it is, it is a statutory process, um, even to the accounts. The account numbers, the names, the object codes, and the names, that is all dictated by the Indiana State Board of Accounts. So there's not, I would argue, anything really, unless it's like a home rule fund, that we determine how it's titled or named. You know, Kim, uh, last year when you thought you were facing budget cuts and some things happened to change that, but you were staring right into a a reduction in force, and that's always difficult. And I'm sure you and the Teachers Association and everyone breathed a sigh of relief when both uh, just just the regular uh, uh, rise and fall of staffing, uh, attrition, if you will, and some additional money coming in from the federal government uh, prevented any kind of a riff. And, And as you understand it now, there's no reduction in force planned in this current budget. 
Well, exactly. And you are exactly right. We were uh, very relieved that we did not have to go through any kind of uh, reduction in force process. We spent, uh, you know, a good amount of time working on that language. And uh, the whole time we were working through that process, we just kept thinking, we really hope we don't have to actually utilize this process. But as you mentioned, through attrition and retirements, we did not um, thankfully have to go through that. Well, let me stay with you, Kim, because I think we've talked enough about the budget, uh, although there's more we could ask. I think that's enough time to spend on that. I could talk all day, Larry, about I, it. I know you can. Well, she can't us, sleep, though. Both of us could. And we were both, uh, I would take my afternoon nap as we did that. Uh, retired guys do that, you know. I'm, I'm generally retired, even though I seem like I'm not. Uh, I wanted to ask you about policies, because school policies have always been uh, um, a very uh, discussed issue. Uh, with the school corporation. And at the October 13th meeting, uh, it appeared when you were presenting a number of policies, uh, changes in policy, but actually more combining policies uh, from one place to another uh, just for, for the sake of uh, what, what uh, the internal staff felt would be easier to, to find, be able to, to find policies and, and, and to be able to put them together correctly. Uh, but there were some changes in there, and uh, it, it uh, did spark some discussion. For example, uh, one uh, discussion amongst the board members and the public, uh, you have, when you have a student survey, right now the way it works, uh, parents can opt out if they wish to do so by a certain date. So the board and some members of the public say, why don't we just have an opt-in where you don't take the survey unless you make an absolute effort to opt into it. Well, that, that created quite a discussion, and there were other issues, too. Just one example of many that were discussed. It was a fairly lengthy discussion and a pretty good discussion. My question to you is, as the administrator that's in charge of presenting this to the school board, now that you've heard so many different opinions, and, and there was, a I won't say division, but different ideas coming from different school board members, that was an informational item that you had at the April, October 13th meeting. The next time you present this, it will be a proposal for a possible vote. How do you work on fashioning the version that you're going to present at that meeting where the vote is, is possibly going to happen to, to combine and change these policies? Yeah, that's a great question. And we did, um, as you mentioned, there was a lot of great uh, discussion that happened in the last couple of board meetings centered around policy and um First of all, I mean, it's, it's greatly appreciated. So the policy committee, um, just to give you a little bit of uh, back information on policy, so the committee meets once a month, and um, we th- a question has arisen. So how do you select policies? So do you pick them? How, how are policies selected to be presented to the committee? And then when we work through that process, we work very closely with CCHA. And that's your we, law firm, just so people know. Correct. Thank you. Yes, that's our law, law firm. So uh, they will review our overall um, policies that we have. So if you look on our website on Board Docs, they are arranged by title um, in categories ranging from A through L. And so CCHA has helped us work through a process where we have tiered our policies in order of importance and priority. So, for example, if the General Assembly, if we have any laws that need to be updated, that prompts us to, well, we need to move these particular policies into our tier one. So CCHA helps us select those policies. We always look for a, 
you know, a, a good number that we, we try to make sure we can work through to get them through those two readings. So with the scenario like we had last uh, last evening in the previous board meeting, we really do listen to that input um, from the board. And so, for example, based on last night's discussion, which I thought was, um, again, it was a great discussion, and I took notes, um, we'll take that back to policy committee. So because of the, the, the depth of discussion and some of the questions that you know, arose from last night's board meeting, uh, we will bring those policies back to committee um, to talk through those again, um, run additional questions by CCHA, and then bring those back again. So it doesn't necessarily um, hold up the process, but I think um, we, you know, we owe it um, to our community to go back. Let's put another set of eyes on the policy. Let's Let's go through that again. My role is to facilitate the policy committee and really the board members on the committee make those, you know, the decisions about what revisions we're going to make. But we do um, include CCHA's advice and then as well as our district discussion um, and allow our association to provide input into that process as well. Just explain to the public, and you don't have to give names, but what what sorts of different people do you have on the policy committee? Well, so we have two board members, myself and uh, Dr. Stokes' assistant, um, who is just a guru navigating the board docs website. Well, that's a whole other entity in itself. So Denise is a great help in that area. Um, the association president will join our meetings as well. Um, so if there is anything related to budget, uh, Katie will join us and Dr. Stokes will show up a time or two. Okay, very mm-hmm. good. Uh, one last question for you specifically, Kim. Uh, there's been an awful lot of publicity about teachers and other educators leaving the profession. Just because of the divisive public views on issues such as masking, vaccinations, uh, there's just so much out there at the moment, so many different views about that. And the staff is often caught in the middle. They really are not making the decisions. They are implementing the decisions that have been made at a higher level. I, I continue to hear anecdotal stories around HSC, a very large school systems, losing teachers this school year because of this. So as best you can, can you quantify what is happening here in terms of your educational staff, certified staff, if you will? Yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's unique to everybody who makes that decision to leave the field of education. Um, and you, you, you still definitely have to have joy in this field when you come to work every day. And I'm not saying these folks have lost their joy. I mean, there are just so many reasons. It's really hard for me, I think, to talk about the exact reasons why some people are leaving this field. Um, you know, the I think that the sad thing is it's not just here at HSE. I mean, this is happening nationwide where we've got um, teachers leaving the profession and you know, is it attributed to COVID? That might have something to do with it. That was a very stressful time, you know, and having engaging in a lot of conversations with our teachers during that time. And 
Um, it was just really good to get to know our people. And, you know, we all have a story. And we, we just do our best to try to support our teachers here at HSE. But again, I know that, that other districts around the nation are dealing with this. And I, it really is a shame because this, of course, I mean, the reason I'm in this profession, you know, and all of us, we love, we love kids. We love helping them succeed. Um, I love helping support our teachers and our staff and, I really hope that we're able to still encourage folks to enter into this profession. As we see teachers leave, the pool of candidates, I mean, we can definitely see shrinking. And so, you know, we're always looking for ways to um, grow our own, encourage folks to go into into this field. I mean, it to me, it's one of the greatest professions you can go into. So do you have to track how many openings you have during the school year? I mean, that must be a difficult job trying to keep things filled. And you, you're you also dealing with substitute teachers. They've been difficult to find as well. Um, is this is this a, a difficult uh, part of your job? Well, and, you know, I would say every year we're hiring all the time, you know, because people leave for various reasons. So whether it's I'm just leaving the profession, I'm going into a new profession, I'm relocating with my family, I'm going to, you know, whatever the reason is, I feel like we're always in the hiring process. Um, however, we talk a lot about subs, and we don't necessarily have a shortage of subs. So in our general sub pool, we have roughly 350 subs in our general sub pool. However, right now, and I'm going to blame it on, on COVID, uh, about roughly 10% of that of our sub pool is just willing to work right now. And so we're really hoping, um, you know, to bring those folks back in. We, we, we need them in our classrooms and folks who care about our kids. Um, so it, it's, it's a challenging time. Um, we're up for the challenge and we'll continue to work on this, you know, and get the, the right folks here in HSC and in front of our, in front of our kids. Well, our time's about up. I, I could talk a lot longer. I, you have work to do, and you know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know how long people can listen to this. I try to keep it at, uh, at a reasonable level. So, I'm going to ask each of you, Katie. Is there anything you would like to add? I didn't think to ask, or we just didn't have time to talk about. No, I don't think so. I just appreciate being here, and you know, if you have, if you ever want to do a podcast for a thousand hours on the budget, <laughs> we can do it. Just kidding. Well, I'm trying to figure out the audience for that one, but uh, it might be a very small one, but it may be there. Yes, I, having been a, a tax law specialist myself, that's uh, I can nerd out of, but I try not to do that in retirement. The only thing I would remind is the public, I guess, is that our budget adoption, so the hearing is the first step. Uh, now, based on that meeting, we'll go back on October 27th um, for the budget adoption, and that'll be at 7 p.m. here at uh, our central office. Correct. You'll have a few days to spare before November 1st. You'll yes. have it done on time. Uh, Kim Lippy, anything you'd like to add? Well, of course. So we are in the process of planning an opportunity fair for the district, and um we're in the very beginning stages. I think we have a date nailed down, so we want to make sure it's a good date before we uh, we reveal this date. Um, but we're looking at what we're calling an opportunity fair, and we want to include different departments so that we can promote this and um, 
come and see what HSE has to offer. This is a great place to work, and we would love to have you. So stay tuned for more information, and thanks for having us. Well, thank you for being here. I want to thank you, Kim Lippy and Katie Dowling, for taking time out of your busy day to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate, and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Mm -hmm.